0: Welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus Who live and work in the city of Glasgow And it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives So as well as listening to this podcast We'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning Or get involved in one of our missional communities Which are across the city throughout the week our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. Good morning again to everyone. Um, if you're wondering why I'm up here again speaking to you this morning, as the same as last week, um, Stephen, our lead pastor, he tested positive uh, just earlier this week, everything's fine, he's all okay, but uh, it does mean he's in isolation, so do be praying for him and, and uh, for the family as well. But it does mean that you've got me again, so I hope that's all right. Um, good. Um, we're going to keep going, though, with this worship series. We seem to be on a bit of a roll. Um, and yeah, so far we've talked in this series um, about worship as story a few weeks ago. We're thinking about the whole picture, the whole story that God is writing and telling and that our worship as a church should be something that that tells that whole story. We spoke last week about worship as participation and how um, we want to bring all of ourselves into this. Worship is really complete when we participate, when we take part, when we actually bring ourselves to this thing. And this week we're thinking about worship is beauty. So, I'm an artist, if you don't already know me. Um, I work for the, the, the church on staff, but also part-time, and I'm an artist. And so you'd think, um, as an artist, this would kind of be my area. And, and yeah, it, it kind of is. But I trained at the Glasgow School of Art just up the hill a few years ago. And during my time there, I noticed that beauty was kind of a dirty word. So one of the things that we had to do was, was a thing called crits. And in a crit, um, you would look at each other's artwork in the class, um, and you would have to have a bit of critique, a bit of feedback about it. Um, and if you were the artist, I would have to kind of keep quiet for a few minutes while people just kind of chatted about it and spoke about the work. Um, asking questions like, what are we looking at? How is it made? What's its materiality? What does the work evoke for us? How does it make you feel? Is the way that it's made successful of evoking what the artist is trying to communicate? What ideas are present? How does it relate to the broader context of contemporary and historical art? And then after the discussion, you'd be allowed to kind of chip in and give your thoughts and feedback as well. But if you ever described something as beautiful, there was a kind of dead, weird silence. A kind of, like you just said a dirty word, like you just stepped in, you know, like when you stepped in something awkwardly in a conversation um, and everything gets a little bit awkward. So why would beauty and the beautiful and words like this invoke such a reaction in a place like an art school? Why would beauty be a touchy subject? Well, I think hopefully to get at that, um, we're just going to have a look at a few things. Um, I'm an artist, so I like looking. Um, I think it's really important. So let's just look at a few things and have a think about maybe what is going on with this word beauty today. Um, So this is um, an artwork by uh, uh, an artist called Tracy Emin, a British artist. This was her um, entry into the Turner Prize in the late 90s. As you can see, it's an installation of her unmade bed. Um, The detritus of her room, the unmade bed, the the clothes, the underwear, some empty bottles of um, alcohol. And that was presented in a room as an artwork. This is another kind of infamous piece of contemporary British art. Again, another Turner Prize entry in the early 2000s. Martin Creed, um, work number 227, A Light Going On and Off. And that's what it is, an empty room with a light going on and off with a five-second interval. Uh, Martin Creed, notorious for his his, his conceptual artworks. There's nothing in the room, nothing to look at. Just the ideas of when you're in that space, this light going on and off, that's all it is. A little bit earlier, 1915, Kazimir Malevich, a Russian painter, black square. 1915, already the turn of the century, very early on, abstraction has reached this point where it's just nothing but a black square. Abstraction again, this kind of taking away from uh, realistic depictions of things in, in painting, in artwork, so you're not actually representing things anymore. And so we've already arrived in 1915 at just a simple black square on a white canvas. This is um, an artist, Robert Smithson. Um, he makes installations, he makes lots of um, earthworks. Earthworks are things which are artworks that are made in the landscape. So it's all about the landscape, it's all about the earth, it's all about the, the dirt and all that kind of stuff. And this is his work, um, this kind of mirror placed in, in, in a pile of sand. Public sculpture. This is uh, Clay's Oldenburg, giant three way plug. And Clay's Oldenburg is famous for taking these ordinary, everyday objects, um, blowing them up to like massive proportions, so they become kind of uncanny, strange. You know, this plug wouldn't ordinarily be this big, and it's been installed as a public artwork. Normally, we expect public artworks to be, you know, statues of famous people or war memorials and things like that. And so artists began playing with the Just the deconstruction of that a little bit. What does it mean to have a public artwork? Looking at architecture. This is a building in Glasgow, just a few blocks down the road. um, One Cadogan Square. An example of um, modernist architecture, brutalist architecture. Concrete, um, very simple forms. But as I'm sure many of you are well aware, even in, in, in Glasgow, it's buildings like this now are, no, are now notorious for the fact that they are being pulled down. Think about the Red Road Flats. I don't know if many of you are familiar with the Red Road Flats. High-rises. Modernist buildings were kind of all about the new, all about these progressive ways of doing architecture and, and inhabiting space. Um, new materials like concrete. Brutalism is, is famous for concrete. It's, that's the French word. That's where it comes from, the French word for Concrete. And now these buildings are notorious. <clears throat> People are unsure as to whether they're really considered <clears throat> beautiful. This, <clears throat> this is in Manchester Piccadilly. Um, Manchester Piccadilly Gardens, a Japanese architect. Again, uh, this is a very divisive piece of kind of public work. It just sits alongside this giant concrete wall, sits alongside the edge of the gardens. Or rather, it did. It's now gone. Um, It famously divided Mancunians. Um, Some dubbed it the Berlin Wall. It became quite decrepit, um, poorly maintained, um, lots of graffiti, a site of kind of antisocial behaviour. Let's bring it on our doorstep a little bit. This is a church in America. I've not disclosed which church it is, just in case somebody gets offended, if they happen to be familiar with it, but... um, yeah, a big church, a mega church. And just think about the, the, the building, think about the architecture of it for a second. It could be a big box store, it could be just a nondescript government building. Is the architecture really telling us anything about what's going on in this space? What do you think about that? How have these ideas of beauty? How is what's happened in the art world, in the architecture world, and in all of these things? How has it begun to maybe even filter into our understanding in the church? So we've looked at a few things there, <clears throat> and of course, I've deliberately picked some, um, some examples of art and architecture that divide opinion. And so I recognize fully that in some senses I'm being a bit pr- provocative. Maybe you liked some of the examples that I shared. Maybe you thought that they are interesting or that you liked them as artworks or, p- or pieces of architecture. And so the caveat here, just, just to say, is that I understand full well that when we start talking about beauty, we're kind of opening a can of worms a little bit that we will get a huge range of opinions just in this room alone of what constitutes beautiful and what is, what is good to look at and what is uh, beautiful to look at. And history is full of much smarter people than me who've, who've not been, been unable to tie that knot of getting at underneath. How do we see the beauty? How do we know what's beautiful? Is it this kind of real thing that's out there? Is it this just purely subjective thing? So that's beyond the scope of this sermon uh, today. But just to kind of put a pin in that... But it's still important for us, I think, to figure out exactly what's going on and how we got here, so that when I show you a bunch of images like that, we begin to wonder what on earth happened to this idea of beauty in the things that we create. How come art, for example, landed in a place where an unmade bed and a light going on and off uh, can be considered as entries into perhaps the world's most prestigious art prize? How did we end up building churches that more, look more like a B&Q than a Gothic cathedral? In other words, why do we have perhaps such an impoverished view of beauty? So, it's a long and complicated story, as you can probably imagine, and I'm not going to do all of it, but I just, I'd almost like, I'll start somewhere in, almost at the beginning of perhaps where things started to fray a little bit, um, in, in quite a simple place. I want to start in a place, um, something called the Dada movement that formed in Europe during the First World War. And so here's a piece that you may be familiar with. This is Marcel Duchamp's fountain, what he called ready-mades, where you just take an ordinary object and you simply present it to the world as art. And so just by raising it up and calling it art, giving it the definition art, it becomes art. That is the thinking. Duchamp loved playing little humorous games, and so a urinal was a kind of perfect little object for him to, to do this with, to kind of provoke questions. Duchamp was one of many different Dada artists. And the Dadaists were looking at war-ravaged Europe, the First World War. They were looking at the mechanical destruction of human life. They were looking at the waste, looking at the suffering. And so what they did is they responded to that by starting to break down the conventions, starting to break down our common understandings, our traditional artistic sensibilities. So they were looking at society that on one level presented itself as of, as, as civil and proper, about law and order, about form and beauty, about logic and reason. And many of these ideals that we present in human civil society as how we, um, how we uh, make a society that's coherent, that's good, and these traditional forms of beauty. And so they were looking at that society and they were looking at what was happening in the world And they were seeing the society engaged in this barbaric act of war, of terror, of bloodshed. And so these artists were horrified. And so they thought, well, if this is how civil society is going to act, then nothing means anything anymore. There are no rules. It's just all absurd. And so they made artwork and they made poetry and, and sculptures and publications that reflected that absurdity. So that the word Dada is just a nonsense word. It means nothing, it doesn't mean anything. People have speculated as to what it might mean, but it doesn't really mean anything. They made artwork which was anti-art. It resists traditional forms and ideas of beauty. The German painter Max Ernst said this, to us Dada was above all a moral reaction. Our rage aimed at total subversion. A horrible, futile war had robbed us of five years of our existence. We had just experienced the collapse into ridicule and shame of everything represented to us as just, true, and beautiful. My works of that period were not meant to attract, but to make people scream. So it can be easy for us, I think, perhaps, maybe, to simply dismiss movements like Dada and artists like Duchamp for having some kind of contempt for beauty. But then when we understand the context, we also kind of see the point that they were trying to make. But the thing is, is these movements then went on to to develop and they've had lots of huge, profound implications for our understanding of art and culture. Because all of a sudden, art and beauty, they've been separated. The art critic Arthur C. Danto called it the dethronement of beauty. Suddenly, anything can be an artwork, no matter what it looks like, no matter what it is. And suddenly, the very idea of what is considered beautiful has been called into question And then, since we've been on this trajectory, everything from interior design to fashion to theatre, art, music—it's been going through this same process: this breaking down, this deconstructing of how and why something is considered beautiful. And we're getting to this point, I think, where I'm wondering if we're starting to be starved of it a little bit. So that's art and culture—that's the kind of the the trajectory we've been on. What about the church? If you remember from our previous weeks, we've been noting the ways that the stories that are being told in the world are having this kind of powerful formation in many ways on the worship and the practice of the church, how we see and do things when we gather to worship. We thought last week about how a consumer culture can lead to a, a, simp- a spirit of apathy when it comes to participation in worship. So I was wondering, how has this dethrallment of beauty affected the worship of the church? It can be easy for us to create an us and them separation between us, the church, and the world, that the contemporary art world and Tracy Emmons bed, it's all just ugly. Or we can look at be- the buildings built in the last 70 years and think they're not built in a pursuit of beauty. But I just wonder if the same symptoms of that impoverished worldview begin to creep into how we conduct our worship in ways that we perhaps don't even know or realize because we're so surrounded by it in this culture. So I just want to read our reading again from John 12. It's a short story, so I just want to read it again. And I think it contains an example for us and a warning. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief as a keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So I just want us to just consider the warning in this story first. I think it can help us understand of what maybe could have happened to beauty in the church. We're told that in this scene, as Mary scandalously washes Jesus' feet with this this super expensive perfume, that Judas objects to what's happening. He seems to think that this was a colossal waste of money. That the money would have been better spent on the poor that the lavishness of this offering of worship at the feet of Jesus was somehow wrong. He's actually kind of saying that he thinks there's a higher moral action that this gift could have been used towards. And so I wonder if you've heard a line of thinking that goes something like this. You might not have heard it directly from people, but it might have just been a sense of something, but I wonder if you've heard a line of thinking like this in the church. Well, you see, those big big cathedrals... And those ornate churches, yes, they're beautiful pieces of architecture, but, but just think about how much money they cost. Think about how many years they took to build. Is that not a colossal waste of time and money? All those things could have been given towards helping the poor. And anyway, they're just, they're just big expressions of, of power. They're just expressions of wealth that the church was trying to exert in society. They were, they were built to manipulate people into serving God, to, to kind of keep them under the thumb of the priest. That's why they built those big t- those spires so that you could see them for miles around so everyone knew who was boss. And so this line of thinking might think, therefore, to make our worship today as authentic and word and spirit-led as possible, we need to strip away all those things. All those images, all that decoration, all that ornamentation, all that artistry and detail, it's just distracting. It's distracting for what we're really there to do, which is to worship God, to listen to his word. And that has had, that like, line of thinking, has had an effect in the church over history. And there are various things that were perhaps needed at various times, but that is still something that I think can be present in our thinking today. It's clear that Judas had an impoverished view of worship an impoverished understanding of beauty that caused him to be so caught up in these financial matters. And he failed to see the reality of what was happening before his very eyes. I and mean, there's definitely something more sinister going on in Judas's heart. Of course, he was the one who eventually betrayed Jesus. But I think there's a warning for us here all the same. Beware an impoverished view of the beauty of our worship. And to be really quite honest, I think that generally the church at large in the West over the last hundred years has found itself to be in a place of an impoverished view of beauty. And I think this has got something to do with the incomplete story of our faith that I think I, I mentioned in week one about story. We, we broke the biblical story down into kind of four uh, fundamental parts, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And we talked about what would happen if you just told one part of each of, of that story or if you left the story with the ending missing. We've been really quite caught up in the redemption part of the story and we've sometimes missed off the end. And this sometimes we talked about can result in a story that, that can leave the gospel just as this shallow thing that just, is just about fixing people but with no real hope or purpose beyond that. What are we being fixed for? The Japanese-American artist and theologian, Makoto Fujimura talks about seeing people as kind of like broken plumbing that we just need to fix. He calls it plumbing theology, but that ultimately, sometimes, we just don't even really know what the pipes are for. We don't know what's going through them. We don't know what the purpose is, and so this is what he says, and, and forgive me for quoting him at length, but I think it puts it so much better than I could. Churches that are active in social causes, for instance, encourage their congregations toward political and other activism, toward noble causes. On the other hand, evangelical churches are heavy with marriage seminars, programs to share the good news, and other ways to fulfill both the Great Commission and God's creation mandate. Again, all good causes. But often the emphasis is on how God, through the Spirit, restores us to be whole, and how by our activism, or by our being filled with the Spirit, we can present a polished, respectable life. It's as if to say we're being fixed by the gospel and we can now live out our identity as a new creation in Christ. But we do not know what purpose and what world we're being prepared for. Again, it's as if we're being provided with tools to fix the pipes of injustice and righteousness, but we have no word on why the pipes are there in the first place. Thus, when we go to church, it can seem like we're being given a new tool each week to fix the broken pipes every week. We have to take that tool home and to use it diligently to fix the pipes of the broken world. And the next week, we go back to receive a new tool and instructions on how to use it. Meanwhile, we're also to invite our neighbours to join us in fixing their pipes. And if we can entice them to go to church with us the next week, so they can help spread the word on those tools about fixing the world. But meanwhile, there's no conversation about why we are fixing the pipes and what the pipes are for. What we may ask as we are using our tools is going through these pipes What are the pipes for? Artists already live in the abundance of God. They see beyond the pipes. They hear the music of the spheres, the desire to respond. They see a vista beyond the world of grey utility. They desire to paint in colour. They dance to a tune of the maker who leads us beyond restoration into the new world to come. God does not just mend, repair and restore. God renews and generates, transcending our expectations of even what we desire beyond what we dare to ask or imagine. And I think that maybe this is what beauty begins to unlock for us. The offering that Mary made, that act of lavish, sacrificial worship, an act of abundance and beauty that showed she understood that what Jesus was about was more than just redemption of her sins, as important and as necessary as that is, but also about the ushering in of this new kingdom that renews, that generates, that ultimately will result in a new creation. Her act went way beyond the mere utility of washing feet, because she could have just used water. It could have just been a very utilitarian act. But she used perfume, a beautiful substance, and her hair... This scandalous, embodied devotion of worship. And so beauty is all about new creation. It's all about giving a glimpse of the reality of the kingdom of heaven that's not currently visible to our mortal eyes, however imperfect, however tainted. This is why, really, Christians built cathedrals in the way that they did. They weren't statements about power, though I'm sure many times the church has been corrupted for that in its history. But really they were physical acts of worship that signalled the hope of a coming kingdom to peoples whose lives were hard and meagre. Last week we were thinking about the temple commissioned and designed by, by God, handed to King David, built by Solomon. And when you read the account of the building of this incredible object of beauty in, in 2 Chronicles and realise just where all that gold and all that precious material and those precious stones went and you're reading about how it was made, it just would have been like catching a glimpse of heaven with the light and the colour and the detail. Every inch of it just lavish, sacrificial. What an act of worship. So as Christians, I think beauty really ought to be our thing. And I just wonder if the dethronement of beauty around us in the world has really clouded our view of this. And so the pursuit of beauty in worship is something that's, that's it's not just good in and of itself. Because after all, we worship a God who, who, clearly, who clearly cares deeply about it when he made creation and declared it to be good. When he designed a pattern for worship for the people of Israel and ordained this creation of something beautiful to be the house of worship for his name. Beauty it does something in our worship that I think is just desperately needed in the world today. And that is that it actually captures our hearts it actually captures our affections more deeply to become more wholehearted worshipers. We're told that Mary's act of worship, using this substance, this, this strong, expensive perfume, it, it fills the whole house with its fragrance, we're told. This, this is not a watered-down perfume. So its smell and its aroma, it fills the whole house. And everyone present has this unmistakable encounter with this act of worship. So her worship is affecting all who are present. It's not just a her and Jesus private moment. Beauty in worship, it arrests our hearts. It makes us notice. It hits our senses. It brings our our whole self to a place where we're just ripe for an encounter with the Spirit of God. So I think sometimes we've actually made the error of thinking that making beautiful things somehow distracts or detracts from worship. We've shied away from making beautiful things, offering worship that is truly creative, that's truly well-made, that's got attention to detail and artistry and craft and excellence, assuming that sometimes these things elevate ourselves, elevate humans, rather than elevating God. And we've assumed sometimes that beauty is somehow competing for airtime with people here in the gospel. And as a result, maybe presented a shallower version of God's story in his good news, preferring to fix the plumbing than to tell people why they have pipes in the first place, what's supposed to be running through them. And the interesting thing is that I think in this process, we've missed out on something drastic that would actually create the conditions by which those who don't know Jesus might actually be more receptive to the gospel. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit somehow requires our ability to produce beautiful things in order to do his work. But the aroma of the beauty of worship causes a sweeter fragrance to hang in the air. It's, it's, it's creating that sweeter fragrance where our hearts and our minds are lifted to the beauty of God, to catch a glimpse of who he is, to understand the stories telling, to see more clearly the Jesus whose feet are being washed in this act of Worship. I can tell you a a strange but a really specific example, I think, of even where I've seen this play out in recent times. There there are a few different sorts of cultural Christian commentators that I listen to online who have podcasts and produce videos and stuff. And there's a really strange thing happening where these kind of podcasters and and commentators that I've been listening to, you know, they're kind of Christian pastors, and some of them, strangely, are orthodox priests. And there's this strange thing happening where there are all sorts of people now congregating online, listening to these kinds of people, these kinds of voices. And some of these people that are coming to listen to them, a lot of these people back in the late 2000s and the mid-2010s when the internet wasn't quite so toxic as it is today, a lot of them were really into what we call the new atheists. They were, like, they were really into people like um, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris. And so they spent many an hour on the internet arguing with Christians about, about all these things and were really militant in their atheism. But strangely enough, many of these folks have meandered over to these, these corners of the internet where these conversations are happening, beginning to hear from these Christian pastors, beginning to hear from these Eastern Orthodox priests, people who are having open and interesting dialogues and discussions. And remarkably, just in the ra- last few years, some of these hardened atheists um, have started to explore faith. They've been starting to openly explore Christianity, in many cases coming to faith themselves. But the interesting thing is do you know where many of them are beginning to attend church? They're going to the Orthodox churches. It's this weird phenomenon happening where they've gone from, in the space of 10 years, militant, hardened atheists, to or converts to Orthodox Christianity. And that really baffles me. That's really interesting to think about. Wondering why this is happening. I mean, maybe it's something to do with the fact that the Orthodox Church doesn't carry as much baggage in the West for many of these atheists or pre, uh, previous atheists. But I was thinking about this. Maybe it's because I've got a sneaking suspicion it's got something to do with the fact that maybe the Orthodox churches still hold beauty in high regard in their worship. So I'm not suggesting for a moment that we begin to just completely rethink and redo how we um, practice our worship. Because the Orthodox Church, it's like, you know, they'll have like three-hour liturgies. And um, and like it's all about like the beards and the robes and the incense and like the icons everywhere. And it, it's it's so other and so different to what we're used to. I'm not for a minute suggesting that we start to change all of that. But I am just wondering if the attention to beauty in worship is creating that sweeter fragrance that's causing people to just notice, that's beginning to capture the hearts of those who, who would have been written off as being most resistant to the gospel just 10 years ago. I'm saying that beauty in worship isn't just about making things all nice and lovely for ourselves on Sunday mornings. Beauty is singing that sweeter song for a world that's just desperately poor in spirit, that just longs for something more. I believe God is inviting us into this journey. And you'll notice I've deliberately not spoken about what this looks like, how I think we might go about it. I think that's a very open question. I don't know. I think that's part of the fun. I think that's part of the adventure as we begin to think about this, as we begin to consider it. But I do believe that now is the time to begin to put beauty back in its rightful place at the heart of worship. To be poured out lavishly, with no regard for cost, no regard for expense, because we believe Jesus is the most worthwhile person to receive our devotion. The world has an impoverished view of beauty. And I think in many ways... The church has inherited that same impoverishment. So what a gift if we begin to dare to bring that precious offering of beauty as part of our worship once again. Let's just pray together. Father, we believe that you are the originator of all things beautiful. It was your idea. Right at the start, at at the creation, you were demonstrating your love by just creating beautiful things calling them good things that weren't just merely useful but but beautiful because it just delights your heart it just speaks of who you are and your character and your love and lord we just want to recognize at the moment the times and the ways and the places in which we've neglected to recognize this lord we actually want to repent of the ways we've dethroned beauty from its rightful place in the worship of your church We long to taste, we long to smell, to see, to touch that sweeter fragrance. We want to put into practice the words of St. Paul when he admonishes the church and says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And we confess that we don't know what that looks like. We don't know how it's going to sound. We don't know how it's going to come about. But we just want to make an offering of praise that is as beautiful as it is sacrificial to you. We trust that you take what we offer, that you make it new, that by your spirit, by the aroma of your beauty, that it would just fill our hearts, fill our room, fill our city with the sweetness of your presence. So we just come with our hearts open. We come with our hands ready to make, to create. We come with our voices ready to sing. Yeah, we just open ourselves up to you, Jesus, in this place.